This morning, we are not in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in the book of Colossians, and we're going to be in the book of Colossians for a specific reason. We're, we're setting the stage for this coming fall, what we're doing. And so our sermon is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to grab one, and you can find Colossians chapter 1 on page 983. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul is speaking. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Oh, Father, would you now bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Amen. So as you know from all the propaganda that you've received throughout the summer, you've received emails, flyers, online surveys, announcements, brochures. As a corporate body, we're, we're committing to work through a small group series this coming fall called The Course of Your Life. And if you've been keyed into the congregational meetings or if you've been sleuthing around different conversations within the church, you're also aware that the elders have been imbibing certain material through the spring and into the summer. During the month of May, the elders retreated and worked through a two-day workshop called called the Vine Project Workshop. And as elders, we have been informally working through two complimentary books that go along with this called The the Trellis and the Vine and the Vine Project. So there's been a lot going on behind the scenes throughout the summer, and now with fall pressing in on us and our ministry starting up, it's, it's time to unveil a vision for the future, what this fall is going to look like and why we're doing it. And so boiling down a, a statement about vision into as few words as possible results in a statement like this. We are laying a foundation for future fruitfulness. That's what we're about. We're laying a foundation for future fruitfulness. And in our time, as we explore what this statement means, I want to accomplish two practical ends, and I've been praying for these ends throughout the week. And the first end is this, that we would gain corporate clarity about who we are as God's people and what we're doing as Fort William Baptist Church. And the second aim is this, that we would grow in enthusiasm and zeal for this coming season of ministry. Not that we would just know, but that we would be excited and ready to take hold of what God has for us. And as we begin to think about this vision, laying laying the foundation for future fruitfulness in its particulars, especially the course of your life for this fall, I need to offer two important caveats, two important qualifications. 
And the first qualification is this. This season of ministry, the course of your life, are not ends unto themselves. And what do I mean by this? Well, I mean when we finish the nine seminars and the two Saturday intensives and the many one-to-one meetings that we will all go through, when we've finished all these things, we haven't arrived. We haven't graduated. We're not done with this work. Rather, the vision statement is laying the foundation for future fruitfulness. And what we will learn this fall and what we will practice this fall is hopefully just the beginning of what God has for us as his people. And the very wording of our statement guards us from this temptation. Just think about the builder when he lays the foundation. He doesn't lay the foundation as a piece of art or as the finished product. Rather, the foundation gives substance and structure to the future home, and the the builder has to return after the foundation is complete and then erect a building upon that foundation. And what we are doing this season, Lord willing, is just the beginning of our work together. And the second qualification is that this season of ministry, the small group series, is not a silver bullet. If you're having marriage difficulties in this season of life, if you're having family problems in this season of life, you will likely still have those problems and difficulties when the course is over. You're not going to get a five or eight easy step process to solve your present crisis. We're not troubleshooting in this course. Foundations aren't about troubleshooting. And again, our vision guards us from having short-sighted expectations. We're doing the, the work of laying a foundation in the present time with our eyes set upon the future. You're like a patient farmer who in the spring plants seeds in the ground and then has to wait until the fall to receive fruit from the ground. The fruit that the the farmer looks for, the fruit that the farmer longs for, cannot grow in one or two weeks. It can't even grow in one month, but it takes a season. In the same way, what we're looking for cannot be found in a short period of time. What we're longing for cannot happen overnight. And this present season of laying a foundation is doing the careful and exacting preparatory work of foundation laying or or seed planting or whatever metaphor or illustration that you might like. It's the work of discerning what's actually going on in our hearts. It's the work of discovering what there actually is in Christ Jesus and who we have become in Christ. It is the work of carefully understanding biblical principles. It is the work of creating and living by healthy and biblical habits. It is the work of taking those principles and those habits and then constructing a lifestyle, a mission mindset out of them. And so with these two qualifications before us, we can do a positive work this morning. And embedded within our vision, we've already seen it this morning, is a metaphor. We are laying a foundation. We are putting in the footings. We're doing the groundwork. Intuitively, we understand that the foundation is not the end goal. So this should lead us to ask a series of questions as a people this morning. What are we aiming to achieve? What will this building look like when it's completed? Even more, what kinds of materials will we need for this project? What kind of tools will we need to acquire? What kind of skills are required for this project? And the most important question, what is this going to cost us? And any wise and competent builder, before he begins his project, will have answers to these questions. The builder will have studied the blueprint, poring over the diagrams and the sketches until he has a firm understanding in his mind of what he is laboring and working for. And he will have this image before him at all times during the project. Whether he's erecting walls or putting up drywall or wiring or putting up the finishing touches of trim 
all is done with the blueprint in mind, this, this vision of where he wants this project to go. Even more, the builder will have acquired and have ready access to all the materials that he will need for the project. He'll make sure that he has all the required tools at his disposal. And the builder understands that a firm knowledge without the proper resources is worthless. You need both. And so we have all sorts of questions before us this morning. Where are we going? What are we building? And how do we get there? What tools do we need? What tools do we need to to sharpen to get there? We can only find answers when we look into the Word of God. And when we look into the New Testament specifically, we find in the Apostle Paul a man who can answer our many questions of where we're going and how do we get there. For in Paul, we find one who at his conversion was set apart for, for gospel labor. The Lord Jesus called Paul his chosen instrument set apart to to give his name, to bear forth his name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And Paul identified himself as one equipped for this very work. His accreditation came not from man but from God. Paul says in the book of Ephesians that he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given by the working of God's power. And all the more, Paul had a clear understanding of the gospel and what is entailed in the gospel. And he did not receive this understanding of the gospel from any institution or seminary or learning center. Rather, Paul speaks in the book of Galatians. He says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul was not slack or slothful in his calling or mission that Jesus called him to. Paul says, he says, I worked harder than any of them. And Paul worked with precision and skill. He says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And when we look at the life of Paul, he was utterly committed to the building project he was called to. He writes in 2 Corinthians saying, giving us these sober words, he says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. As we look over this brief synopsis of Paul's life that we find in the New Testament, his qualifications to help us answer these questions are evident. The Lord has set his seal upon Paul's ministry. His effectiveness is made plain to us. His passion and commitment are unmatched. You're not going to find anyone quite like Paul in Christian history. But we can ask Paul this morning, Well, we've heard of your zeal, we've heard of your passion, we've heard of your qualifications, but where are you going? What are you aiming to get done? What are you building? And in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, we find Paul's divinely certified blueprint for ministry. And in these verses, we can see Paul's suffering and struggle for the church. We see, find his his zeal and love for the proclamation of the gospel. But in the midst of all of these descriptions, we find a clear purpose to it all. We find it in verse 28. 
Paul tells us where he's going and what he's aiming at. He says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. What Paul is doing here is he's looking at the church in Colossae, and what he desires is that every member of this church would would grow up into maturity. In the mind of Paul, conversion, repentance, faith, baptism, membership within the body are all necessary features of the Christian life. In fact, we can say to not have experienced all of these aspects, to not have shared in them, or to have practiced in all these aspects is not to be a Christian. But Paul understands that there's more to be done in the Christian life. And Paul's desires that all of these aspects so necessary for the Christian, conversion, repentance, faith, baptism, sharing in the corporate body of Christ would would deepen, would ripen, would come to full and complete stature within the lived experience of the Christian life. What we see in Paul in chapter 1 of the book of Colossians is a parental desire for the church. He desires that those who, by God's new birth, have become infants in Christ would grow up to be little boys and girls in Christ. And then those little boys and girls in Christ would grow up to be full-grown men and women in Christ. Or we could just say, as Paul says, that we may present everyone mature or complete or perfect in Christ. So this is Paul's aim, but we have to query him more. What does it mean to be mature or complete or perfect in Christ? What does that entail? And when we survey Paul's letters across the New Testament, we can boil down maturity into three aspects. So the first aspect of maturity that we need to grasp with is, grasp with is the aspect of conviction. So when we think about Christianity, there's an inescapable component to Christianity that involves conviction of doctrine. In and through the proclamation of the gospel, we learn certain things about who God is and what God is like. In the proclamation of the gospel, we learn certain things about Jesus and what Jesus has done. In the proclamation of the gospel, we even learn certain things about ourselves and what we have done. And when we study Paul's writings, we quickly come to understand that for Paul, doctrine is not something to be stashed away on a dusty bookshelf or it's something just reserved for the pastor's study. But the doctrine, conviction and doctrine, this work of knowing God according to the scriptures is a work graciously given to every member of Christ's church, every disciple. We all, each and every disciple, are called to know God. And Paul's doctrinal desire for the church spills over in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Paul, in this passage of Scripture, talks about Christ and that Christ has given gifts to the church. And he's specifically given pastors and teachers to the church. And when pastors and teachers exercise their their function, something happens. And this is what happens, he says, in verses 12 and 14. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And if we grab hold of Paul's logic, one significant aspect in Christian maturation is the knowledge of doctrine. The disciple who has moved from childhood to adulthood 
is a disciple who has, has, has understood what God teaches in the Scriptures. The disciple has reached full height. This is a disciple who firmly knows who God is and what God is like. This disciple knows the gospel and what has become of him in Christ Jesus. And this disciple, as he reaches manhood or womanhood in Christ, is not easily blown away by the storms of false doctrine that beat against the church. This disciple is not easily tempted by appealing and crafty arguments that are contrary to the Scriptures. This disciple has been trained in the Scriptures and will hold to the trustworthy word as taught. And so we can say this Christian maturity is marked by a growing and ripening conviction of the doctrine revealed in the Scriptures, knowing God's words. So we can ask ourselves this morning, well, where are we going in this vision? What are we aiming at? Well, we are aiming at growing in a conviction of doctrine, a work in which we'll have to dig away at false ideas that have clouded our vision of what life is and what life is about and replace them with a true and sure foundation built upon God's words. This brings us to a second aspect of Christian maturity, and that is character. It becomes quite apparent when you study the Scriptures that Christians are not called to be detached brains, learning doctrine, memorizing doctrine, spewing out doctrine. Rather, the knowledge of God and the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus takes us somewhere. Better yet, this knowledge that we learn in the Scriptures is transformative in nature. We are to become different sorts of people. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, Paul bridges the gap between conviction of doctrine and character. And he writes this to the church. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What Paul is saying is there's no divorce between what you learn in the Scriptures and then how you are to live in light of them. The Christ whom we receive in the preaching of the Gospel is the Christ in whom we are to live. Paul says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so, so walk in Him. The doctrine we receive in the preaching of the Gospel is a doctrine we are to act upon and obey. And Paul sums up this idea of character powerfully in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10. So simple, Paul says. He says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. At the heart of Christian maturity is this desire to conform everything, how we think, how we feel, how we act, what we do with our eyes, what we do with our hands, to conform all of these realities to one reality, and it is this, the will of our Savior. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And this matter of character gets down into the nitty-gritty Paul exhorts a a certain kind of transformational living. And so we can ask, well, what does it practically look like to grow up in Christian maturity, to become a man or a woman in Christ? Well, it means that we are a people out of desire to please our Savior, stop doing certain things, stop acting in certain ways, and stop desiring certain ends. Paul pushes on us practically in Colossians chapter 3. He says to the church, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He gets practical about what it means to be a man or a woman in Christ. 
even more out of a desire to, to please our Savior, we start doing certain things, start acting in certain ways, and start desiring certain ends. And Paul encourages the church in Colossians 3. Again, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so where are we going? What are we aiming at? What do we want to become? Well, Paul helped Paul's helpful. We are, we are taking steps to become a certain kind of people, a transformed people, a people who have put off certain things and a people who have put on certain things, a people who desire to please the Savior in everything we do. This brings us to a third aspect of Christian maturity, and that is competency. And so when we think about Christianity, the focus of Christianity is always other person-oriented. Jesus' words should ring loud and true in our minds this morning. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In this third aspect of Christian maturity, we can start putting the pieces of the puzzle together. We grow up in doctrine and in knowledge, not to stare at our own big heads or to marvel others with the knowledge that we have acquired. Neither we grow in Christ-like character to, to stare at our spiritual physique in the mirror like a, like a teenage boy flexing our muscles. Rather, sound doctrine and pleasing character spill over incompetent ministry to others. And Paul stresses this very idea in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul is teaching that the church is built up in knowledge and doctrine, transformed in character for a specific reason, that the church at large might excel in ministry to others. And Paul clarifies this for us. He says, And Christ gave pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What Paul says about ministry, the Christian life, has staggering implications. Our Western economy teaches us to think certain ways about life. Our Western economy teaches us that there are two groups of people. There is the, cons- there is the, the producer, that person makes something, then there's the consumer, they, they receive something. There is the seller, and then there is the, the buyer. And we are tempted to take this economic picture, which we, we are so used to, and apply it to the church. In the church, well, there is the, the producer, and then there is the consumer. There is the seller, and there is the buyer. But Paul destroys the dichotomy of producer and consumer. The gift-giving Christ desires not that, a, not that a few of his people would do ministry or that some of his people would do ministry, but the gift-giving Christ gives gifts so that all, the whole body of Christ, might be trained for ministry. What Paul is saying is that a mature and complete Christian will not simply learn, but he or she will also become a teacher in their own capacity. A mature Christian will will not only be a disciple, always learning, but becoming a disciple-making disciple, training others in the way of the kingdom. So brothers and sisters, where are we going? What are we aiming at? What do we want to become? We are aiming to be a competent people equipped for the work of ministry. As Paul says, as Christ gave, gave pastors and teachers, why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. We desire to be a people equipped for ministry, ready to serve at the will of our Savior. 
And so what we have laid out before us this morning, there's three C's, conviction, character, and competency, is, is a beautiful and compelling picture of what the church ought to be and what we desire it to be. Reality that is worth working towards, a reality that is worth sweat and labor, even suffering. But if this is the reality that we desire and this is the place where we want to go, even more importantly, if this is what the Lord Jesus has for his church and this is what he commands his church to be doing, we have to ask, well, well, how do we get there? How do we get this competency and this character and this conviction deep down into our souls? What tools do we need? What tools must we sharpen? When we look at the scriptures, God in his mercy has given us three tools for this building project, and we find them elaborated throughout the scriptures. So we receive three C's, and we can, we'll have three P's to build on that. So the first tool that God has given to us is the, the proclamation of God's words. And this should make theological sense to us. It was through the word of God that the heavens and earth were made. It was through the word of God that the stars and moon were were flung into space. It was through the word of God that grass and trees and animals were made. And it's by the word of God that we even exist today. God speaks and we're here. We're contingent creatures. We are dependent upon God's words. And so when we consider our spiritual lives, our new birth, our faith, our repentance, our baptism, our growing maturity in Christ, we have to recognize we are dependent Upon God's words. Paul writes this effect in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. He instructs us, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, the importance of proclamation is on display this morning. We as a people have corporately gathered together. We have said this morning when we woke up out of bed, I need God's word today. I need it proclaimed to me. I need it preached to me. I need to hear it once again. The importance of public preaching of God's word is underlined throughout the scriptures. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, Paul commands Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. But we have to insist We can say this all the more strongly. We have to demand that the proclamation of the word of God happen outside of Sunday morning sermons. The scriptures cast a wide vision of proclamation for the people of God. The proclamation of God's word has not been entrusted to one man for one hour once a week. And if this is your only diet of God's word, you're going to be a malnourished Christian, a malnourished disciple, and you're not going to grow up to be a, a hardy man or a woman of God. Rather, the proclamation of God's word has been entrusted to an entire people for the whole of life. We all bear God's word, and we are all called to proclaim God's word to each other. And Paul commands the church in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, and he, and he paints a beautiful picture of what this would look like in the life of the body. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. We need each other to to teach each other, to admonish one another, that the word of Christ might be in us and that we might grow up into manhood and womanhood. So we can ask again, how how will we get to maturity? How will we become competent and and convicted and, and full of Christian character? Well, the answer is this. It will happen through widespread, rampant, and continual proclamation of God's word to each other. 
But we have to recognize that what we're aiming for this morning and what we desire and yearn for to be a competent, to be a a people full of the character of Jesus, to be convicted in doctrine cannot be created by men. It cannot be crafted by our own wisdom or our own ingenuity. This project, this vision that we have is entirely God-dependent in nature. And we have to feel this. We have to get this down into our bones. Who can make the deaf hear? And who can give sight to the blind? Who can cause a person dead in their sins to, to live and treasure Christ? Who can, who can cause someone who, who loves money become a lover of God? Who can cause someone who, who loves to worship idols, put them down and turn and serve the living God? And the reality is we can't do that in our own power, in our own strength, in our own ingenuity. The reality is that God must be at work in our midst. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so in light of this God-dependent reality, God has placed a precious tool into our hands. And what is that tool? Well, it's the work of prayer. And it's when we go to God asking him, there's these idols in my life, they need to be put to death. I need your help in my own strength. I cannot do it. You need to supply the strength for this. When we are ministering to others and, and we see that there's sin entrenched in their lives, we cannot root it out for them. We need to pray, oh God, would you, you supply strength and, and wisdom? So how are we going to get to Christian maturity? How do we get to where we want to go? We need to seek the face of our God in prayer. And this next week, what are we doing as a church? Well, we're dedicating ourselves to a week of prayer. And what will we be doing in our small groups? Well, we will gather together and pray. And our one-to-one partners, we're going to pray for each other, asking God to be at work amongst us and in us and through us. And this finally brings us to our last tool. There's proclamation, there's prayer. What's the last P? And we don't have to look far to find this tool. We don't have to search about for it. The last tool is right under our noses. It's ourselves. The last P is people. We can ask ourselves, well, how does God build up his church? How does God gather in the lost? How does he encourage the faint-hearted? How does he admonish the idle? How does he rebuke the insolent? How does he train up his children? How does he call us from sin? How does he remind us of his many promises? How does he keep us so often from temptation? How does he minister comfort and consolation to us? The answer is God uses means. He uses people who speak the word of God prayerfully to each other. And this is such a glorious thing. God in his wisdom works his plan of redemption through people like me and you as we take up the word of God and we speak it to each other. And we pray about it. This is how God administers grace and kindness to us. How he matures us into Christ. So we have this vision. We want to, we want to become mature. How do we get there? Well, we must use ourselves. We must be diligent. And so, brothers and sisters, here is the vision. We aim to be a people mature in Christ, a people firm in our convictions and built up in healthy doctrine. We aim to be a people of sound character, replete with the graces of Christ in us. Even more, we aim to be a people competent in ministry, taking part in the mission of God with wisdom and skill. That we might be like Paul, master builders. And so I call you this morning. 
Will you not strive with us and work and toil towards this end? Will you not pick up the the tools that God has graciously given to you? Will you not take up the word of God and bear it, speaking the word of God to to your neighbors and covenant partners and members? Will you not take up the work of prayer and and prayerfully pray for each other? Will you not use yourself to this great end? So there's one last question. There's the vision. That's how we get there. What is this going to cost us? One cannot put a monetary figure upon this biblical vision. It's too beautiful. It's too, too precious for us. But we can be assured of this. It will be costly for us. We will have to overcome our fears and our anxieties, and we have many fears and anxieties. We have to overcome uh, and put to death our love of comfort. We have to put away selfishness. This vision is going to cost us our time and energy. This vision is going to cause us, and we're going to have to put to death sins and vices and unbiblical habits, and they're going to be exposed before each other. It's going to cost us. And so we can say, what will this vision cost us? Well, it'll cost us absolutely everything. But at the same time, there's a paradox in this vision and how we answer this question. This vision will absolutely cost us nothing. What is your, your sacrifice or your time or your energy or your comfort or your, your many individual pursuits in relation to the riches that are in Christ Jesus? What is our toil and trouble and suffering in relation to maturity in Christ and looking like Christ and acting like Christ and thinking like Christ? And when we think this way, when we make this equation, our sacrifice, our toils, our hardships are nothing compared to the weight of glory that we are striving after. So brothers and sisters, this vision will cost us everything, but at the same time, it will cost us nothing. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your redemptive purposes. That you desire to take a people lost and dead and sin and conform them to the image of Christ. And Father, we desire, we long to work out your plans of redemption. We long to be faithful in proclaiming the word of God to each other and praying for each other and using our own bodies, our own lives for each other. And Father, we pray, we pray, would you mature us in Christ? Amen.